Hi, I'm Mark Brody, co-host of the show, one of KJZZ's original productions. It's a program with news and features from across Phoenix and the state. You can find much more at theshow.kjzz.org. Here's today's episode. Good morning. Welcome to the show here on KJZZ 91.5 in Phoenix. I'm Mark Brody. Coming up, we'll meet a Valley chef who's been working in kitchens since he was high school age and remembering Valley artist Ed Mel, who died last week. But first, it's time for the Friday Newscap and some voices from the news this week. We, through the states, have empowered the federal government to do certain things. One of those is to protect our borders. And when the federal administration refuses to do that, we as states must step in. We do not have to make assumptions about whether this will lead to widespread racial profiling. We know that it will because that is Arizona's history, a very shameful history that we have had to work so hard to come back from. This bill threatens not only to impose crippling fines on businesses, but also sends a chilling message to the immigrant entrepreneurs like myself and immigrant workers that are not welcome, that we're not welcome. It is clear that the incompetence of our current county recorder contributes to the belief among all of our voters that uh, that, that things aren't on the up and up. So if he wants to work on Election Day operations, he should run for the Board of Supervisors. It's the same half-cent sales tax. You won't see an increase, but that half-cent goes a lot less than what it used to. So we're, we're trying to do a lot more with a lot less. It's critical to the state of Arizona. It's critical to, to Maricopa County and our cities. And with me to talk about a new entrant into the GOP primary for Maricopa County Recorder, more immigration bills moving through the legislature and more, are Doug Cole of High Ground. Good morning, Doug. Good morning, Mark. And Carl Gentles of the Gentles Agency. Good morning, Carl. Good morning. So, Doug, let me start with you with the announcement of uh, State Representative Justin Heap, a member of the Arizona Freedom Caucus. We heard from him uh, just a moment ago, getting into the race to, to primary Maricopa County Recorder Stephen Richard. Not a surprise that there would be a primary challenger. And I guess there, the rumors had kind of been swirling for a few days that, that it would be Mr. Heap. Well, this, this was no surprise to anybody that's been paying attention here. I think the bigger, bigger surprise is, is we, here, here we are, we're leading a, a, uh, a, a morning show talking about the Maricopa County Recorder. You know, for years, Helen Purcell just quietly did her job. And, yeah. and this, was a, this was the post that went nowhere. But, but here it is, pushed front and center by all the election controversies. And um, I think you heard uh, Recorder Richard make the distinction that, you know, I, I do early voting and, and voter registration. The Board of Supervisors does everything else. Um, but, but because of the election denialism and, and such, um, uh, Stephen Richard has become a national figure. And, uh, the, the, you know, the, the supporters of Donald Trump and the election deniers have, have made him a target. Now, uh, Representative Justin Heap is a freshman member of the state house he's from an extremely safe district that that is you know that you win in the primary hands down and you are elected as long as you want to be running running countywide in in the state in the nation's fourth largest county is going to be a different different animal for him he has no money in the bank he uh in in last according to reporting from from Dennis Welch who works at Channel 3 and Channel mm-hmm. 5 uh, he has raised no money here and he's going to have to raise a lot of money because there's going to be a lot of noise in this election uh, to 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 get um, uh, uh, 
you know, cross the finish line, but he will get the Trump endorsement. So th- that's going to be a big challenge for, for the incumbent, uh, Stephen Richard. How much, like, how do you handicap this race at the moment? Mm, I would put it as a toss up right now to see, to see how, you know, how things unfold. Um, you know, Stephen Richard's well-spoken um, and uh, works really hard. And, I, you know, there's, he's really good on social media. He had some fun last <laughs> night if anybody was paying attention. But, but you know, it's, it's going to be a tough race. Um, but, uh, you know, I'll handicap, you know, incumbents are hard to beat, okay? Um, and I can tell you the, the, the McCain wing of the party, independents uh, who can vote in the primary – um, I think that they'll, you know, that they're, they'll naturally go to Richard. Uh, it's just to see how big the 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 coattails of Donald Trump's going to be in a recorder race like yeah. this when you have a very well spoken recorder. Carl, does this seem like potentially, depending on how the primary goes, could this be a pickup opportunity for Democrats if, for example, Justin Heap is the nominee? Yeah, I, I really I think it is because um, you know, first of all, the most extreme. Uh, uh, candidates win in the primaries, right? And Justin Heap is to the far right of Richer. It's interesting that you you've got a seat and you're trying to hold a seat, but then you're you're challenging that seat with somebody a mega Republican, basically. But when it gets to a primary, uh, I highly doubt a Justin Heap if he does prevail. Uh, we'll have an, a real shot at winning in general elections. So, I mean, there's going to be craziness. It's going to be fun to watch. Uh, Stephen Richard, I think, is actually a very good candidate and has done a great job, even though he did take the seat from a Democrat. But I do believe that uh, if Justin Heap ends up winning, um, we'll have uh, we'll have a, uh, a a Democratic – we may even have uh, the Democrat take on that seat in um, Tim Stringham. And remember when – if I may, it, when, when uh, Stephen Richard first came, came um, on – uh, on the screen as, a, as a running for office, he was considered a far right candidate uh, and, and had a history of because of, he's a lawyer of litigating election cases. He was considered a far right candidate. That's how far the spectrum has moved. Yeah, yeah. it certainly doesn't appear to be that anymore. In fact, um, you know, by all measures, he's he's certainly not on the mega part of the of the party. So uh, I, I don't think that um, Stephen I, I do believe that Stephen Richard has a great shot at, uh, at winning the primary. Although, like I said, the most extreme, the farthest right, the farthest crazy you can get in the primary is typically what people navigate to, particularly on, on the Republican side. If Richard is able to get through the primary, do either of you see him losing the general election? Carl, what do you think? Well, uh, should I answer that as, a, as an analyst or a Democrat? <laughs> so... Um, uh, I would say that I would yes. say, okay. <laughs> you pick. I'll okay. let you pick. Look, look, look. Um, I, uh, Stephen Richard is going to be tough to beat. Like, like um, Doug said, um, uh, the power of the incumbency is there. He's got some really high name ID. Um, he, he's he's actually um, from from all looks. I'm doing a reasonably decent job. But look, um, uh, on Democratic side, we have a very strong candidate in Tim Stringer that's going to be coming along. Um, he will challenge and make a very strong run and. I, I think overall, look, um, uh, uh, Maricopa County is a is a is a blue county now, Mister Cole, and we believe it's going to stay that way and trend uh, even further. So I think it's going to be very very competitive, without question. Um, uh, Richer will be difficult to beat, but look, now you're going to have two, uh, and you, you know you've had attorneys in that position with um, uh, our, our former um, uh, county recorder uh, Fontes and uh, right. now Richer. And then, of course, um, Tim Stringer, who is uh, a, a JAG um, Navy guy, um, will be uh, will be will be a formidable candidate. And Justin Heap, an attorney, also. 
Exactly. Well, I'm not ready to call Pinal County blue by any any stretch of the Maricopa imagination. County. Maricopa well, we County. Well, call Pinal County blue I too. Mean, I mean, Pinal County is definitely red. That seems like a bigger stretch. Uh, yes. Excuse me. I meant <laughs> I meant Maricopa County. I'm not ready to go there yet. Um, but yes, it is getting more purple, and and you know, it also, you know, a lot of this depends upon uh, you know a general election voter turnout. Okay, I would say Stephen right. Richard, if, if if he gets past primary, is going to be the, the recorder again. By my political estimation, but it's all you know. It's all about how this works uh, in, in the next number of months, getting to November. We have a lot of things that are going to drive out drive out uh, uh, voters, like mm-hmm. the, like the the abortion uh, right. uh, referendum and other things that we're, I'm sure we're going to talk about here in the next few minutes. Yeah, if I could, real quick. I yeah. mean, um, uh, there will be a number of ballot measures coming up. The abortion access is going to be on. That's going to turn out enormous uh, higher turnouts than usual. It's a presidential camp uh, year. Um, and then there's a lot of money flowing into the into Maricopa County to uh, support um, actually both sides, but um, yeah. support, of course, um, a, a high turnout uh, for uh, Democratic voters and others. Carl, let me stick with you with the news from last night that the chair, now former chair of the Arizona Board, Board of Regents, Fred Duvall, not stepping down from the Board of Regents, stepping down as chair of the Board of Regents. This comes uh, in advance of a meeting between the board and some U of A folks and the governor. Next week, the governor has made her displeasure with the current situation, the financial situation down there, pretty well known. Are you surprised that, that Mr. Duvall decided to step down as chair? I, I am not. I think it was probably a smart move, um, a preemptive move on his part. Uh, I think um, it was clear that the governor is not happy. And I think the takeaway that, uh, on this is uh, be straight with the governor and make sure she knows what's going on, because if you don't, um, here you go. Um, I, this this whole thing is an absolute fiasco. Number one, um, uh, let me just say a couple of things. One is I just don't know how uh, uh, Mr. Robbins um, – uh, he, uh, how he survives the president uh, of the, the U president of a. Uh, U of a. I don't know how he survives ultimately. I mean, it's a two hundred what forty uh, two hundred fifty million dollar um, issue um, that uh, U of A is facing a huge shortfall. It's going to affect many many lives, and and it just seems like people were asleep at the wheel. And we know um, apparently the where it started with the online university. And, and that just not um, uh, panning out the way it was uh, it was envisioned. But I will tell you that. Um, the governor, of course, has a strong uh, pulpit here. Uh, while she, it may be questionable whether or not she could or could not re- um, remove somebody from the position, I think uh, Mr. Duvall really uh, read the tea leaves and said, you know what, let me go ahead and step aside now. Um, I, I'm, sure the, I'm sure the hatchet's coming as it is anyway, so let me do that now for the good of what he said is, is the Board of Regents and, and universities. Well, Doug, we know that the governor was at least looking into whether or not she had the authority to fire members of the Board of Regents. Let's assume that she concludes that she does. Does this make Fred Duvall safe that he's not the chair anymore? Well, he, you know, he's not he's not the chair now. I mean, he's resigned from from being being the chair of the Board of Regents. It's whether how long he still has a few years left on his term. Remember, yeah. These are like these are long terms. These aren't four year terms. They're, they're I think six six years. Yeah, I think they're six years. And and these are one of the preeminent uh, appointments that a governor makes. But whoever she appoints has to go through Senate confirmation, right? And we've all seen how that goes. It's in court right now. Pretty it much does, a it doesn't go. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So if so, you know it, that that's going to be. And this is not new. Go, governors I, in the nineties when I was working on the ninth floor with Governor Symington. We had a, a, a regent named Rudy Campbell, great guy. He was former mayor of Tempe, but but the the, the Simonton administration didn't like what he was doing on the Board of Regents. So we were calling for his res- resignation, and he said, no, Governor, I'm not going to do that. But laws have changed since that time, 
and in on the appointment process, and that was all part of, of, of personnel reform in the state. So the governor does have more power. But what we don't know, it hasn't been litigated and challenged in court yet. Right. And I think if if, if there's a fourth, we, we know that, you know, Governor Brewer tried to get rid of the independent uh, redistricting uh, uh, chairwoman, remember? Yep. And then went to the Supreme Court. So that was the only litigation, uh, and, and, and Colleen Mathis was reinstated. Okay, so that's all we got. And so I'm sure this would be litigated, and I think I think the governor's office just wants a path to move forward. Um, I think I think Dr. Robbins is probably not in a you know uh, uh, is it probably in a pretty precarious situation, um, and you know we'll just see how this plays out. But this had to happen. Something had to. There, it, something had to happen. You know, there was a press conference just recently um, that um, about the whole issue, and uh, glaringly. Uh, there was no representation from any um, Tucson representatives mm. at that press conference uh, in support of uh, Dr. Robbins or otherwise. So that tells you quite a bit. Yeah. The current president and former president, both in Texas yesterday at the border, uh, policy discussion, photo op, campaign opportunity. What do you think? Well, she's probably all of the above. I mean, it was just a, it was just a circus all the way around, um, um, you know. I, it, what's what's crazy about this issue is that number one, you know, it was a, a day that they had a dueling, you know, dueling press conference and dueling photo ops and all that good stuff. Um, uh, President Trump, or former President Trump, went down and and uh, as as the rest of the party is doing is using the border issue as their number one issue to try and uh, uh, to to leverage on the the election. Because there's really nothing else at this point. Um, I think it's clear that um, they're they're searching for uh, an issue that um, will hope that they hope that will carry them. Uh, and I think that's basically all it was um, on on the Republican side. On Democratic side, I mean, the message is this: Look, there is a bill on the table in Congress now. Sign it, uh, and it's a pretty good bill from all intents and purposes, especially uh, from the Democratic side, where there are a number of concessions that were made. Uh, and so, um, you know, um, Biden is there touting, you know, the bill. He's touting the economy and things that are going well um, now. Um, you know, uh, inflation's coming down. Uh, rents are coming down. Um, and so things are looking much better. And so uh, this is a, a, a way that Republican side and uh, the Trump, Trump uh, folks can truly, well, can uh, try to at least uh, – uh, pull away some support for the general election. Well, Doug, let me ask you about that, because traditionally the border and border security have been strong issues for Republicans and have been pretty weak issues for Democrats, in, at least in elections. I'm wondering, though, do you see that changing at all, given the fact that, as Carl said, there is a bill that Democrats and Republicans worked on together that basically didn't go anywhere because of former President Trump? Look, this this issue has has turned into a big problem for for the incumbent president right now. It is the, the Gallup came out with a poll, uh, and other polling has shown it's it's turned into the number one issue almost across the country in every state. When you have the the mayor of the largest city in the country of New York, uh, City Mayor Adams, arguing with the with the Biden administration, uh, you know, mayor of Chicago, mayor of San Francisco, mayor of Denver, all Democrats, all going after the Biden administration because. They can't handle the influx of immigrants. You know, as I looked at yesterday, I said, thank God Texas is such a big state to handle both of these traveling <laughs> circuses. 
But but this is a problem for the incumbent president, and and this is why you see actions in state houses, and I know we're going to talk about that in a second here. Actions in state houses across across the country. Historically, you're correct. It was a Republican rally the troops. Um, now it is a Democrat problem. You've got divisions within the Democrat Party, Democratic Party about how to handle this. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I just mentioned the big city mayors. You got you know state legislators, Democratic state legislators are, are disagreeing with, with with the administration. So th- this is going to be hard for the for for the president to handle. But what we did see yesterday was a unified messaging, and we saw it from Senator Mark Kelly on the floor of the Senate yesterday saying saying pass this bill, as Carl right. said. Get this bill passed. So the Democrats were very good at their messaging yesterday and in blaming Donald Trump. You know, we had a bill. Uh, uh, inaction helps you so you can sit, sit and continue to, to pontificate about the, the border problems. We're going to see a lot more of this, folks, between now and November. <laughs> All right. So, Doug, you, you previewed this. So let's talk about uh, uh, the legislature passed a bill uh, yesterday that is going to Governor Hobbs, who has said she will veto it. Yes. It is being referred to as SB 1070 version 2.0, essentially making it a state crime to be in, in the country illegally mm-hmm. again. Given that the governor said she's going to veto it, like, I, I hate to ask a kind of a cynical question. Like, is this a symbolic vote here? We can't ask cynical questions on a political talk I know, show. Right? Oh, my goodness. What's <laughs> what happening? Wait, wait, yeah, what are we going to talk about here? Well, I think the interesting thing is, is yeah, it's 14 years later, very similar bill. Again, for the issues that we just discussed on the national front, state houses are doing this across across the country. But it's not 14 years ago. The uh, the climate has changed changed quite a bit. We're, you know, I don't see forty thousand people marching on the state capitol like we had in twenty ten, but um, every, you know, we're in a political year. The people that you know they 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 you know their constituents are demanding action. But I think what was interesting, then and then there's also a referral which which, would, which re- requires right. uh, state cities and, t- and counties um, uh, to to uh, e verify people if they apply for a license. And and if uh, those political subdivisions hire subcontractors, which is an expansion that would go that would bypass the governor and go straight straight to the to the 2024 ballot. But my point, what was interesting about all this, where is Governor Hobbs this week? She's down on a trade mission meeting with in, in Mexico City with a bunch of Arizona business people, uh, her her um, uh, commerce authority directors and tourism directors all down there touting Arizona and all this is going on back at the state capitol. Well, now let's be fair because apparently there's a whole delegation going off to 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 Israel as well. So I mean, we got competing, uh, you know, trips in the middle of all this controversy. Now, let me just say this: uh, th- there's a package of these bills um, that are at the legislature right now. It, it basically is SB 1070 on steroids. Uh, when you take the totality of them, there's even a bill. Uh, that would allow ranchers to shoot migrants as they come on their property, which is ridiculous. I don't know anybody except for the people that po- uh, you know proposed that um, legislation thought that's a good idea. And clearly, uh, the American people don't believe in shooting people walking onto their property, particularly in this issue. Now, is the border and and uh, immigration issue are are those issues a, a big issue? But there's no question. But it's not that it's the Biden administration that caused this. This has been going on for years across across administration. Let's not forget the former President Trump was in office for four years and it was going on them uh, on then. So it's not as if uh, he had some magic solution and, and illegal immigration shut down 
And then when Joe Biden came into uh, office, all of a sudden it spiked up again. So let's be clear on what's going on. This is purely a political ploy from Republicans to try and find an issue to win the election. And I believe that it's going to fail miserably. Why? Now, we should we should absolutely do something to secure the border. The challenge is, is that we have to do it at a federal level because it's a federal issue. And you can't have state law supersede federal law. And so you have to have something that's uniform. Now, this goes back to our days um, many, many years ago. Um, Doug was at, um, at, at Simonton's office, governor's office, I was at McCain's office. Immigration, comprehensive immigration reform was a huge subject. Our, our former boss, McCain, was a big proponent of that. It has gone nowhere since then, and that was the early 90s. So it's not as if Joe Biden woke up and made the border wide open, which is, you know, I can't cuss uh, before 930 Please in the morning, and so I won't. Uh, but it just doesn't make any sense. So let's get our story straight here. Number one, we all want comprehensive reform. It has to be done. And we've got a bill on the table right now in Congress to make something happen. Doug, obviously, and we just a minute or a couple minutes left. Obviously, the um, the bill that the legislature passed, the governor said she's going to veto it. So this won't be an issue here. However, you know, we saw yesterday a, a judge in Texas put SB4 on hold, which, you know, the Arizona bills are largely modeled after. Mm-hmm. Does that say anything to you about maybe what, like, obviously you were involved with Governor Brewer when SB 1070 mm-hmm. went into effect and it went after the Supreme Court. Does this court ruling say anything to you about what the legal climate might be for these kinds of bills? Muddied. <laughs> <laughs> and that's a technical term. Yeah, that's right. But but we're in, this is a hypercharged political situation. Um, and, and it has gone on. I mean, the last major, major uh, reform to the immigration system was Ronald Reagan uh, back in the late 80s yeah. uh, before he left. That was it. Um, and and there, have been, there have been Democrats. There have been Republicans. There have been Republicans. There's been Democrat presidents all since the Reagan administration. And it just sits there. And so something, something needs to be done on the federal level. But my goodness, is it, does it make good election year uh, uh, wedging, you know, wedge, uh, uh, policy wedging with voters and such. And that's what we're, we're, we're experiencing right now. And like, as I said earlier, you know, fasten your seatbelts, folks. This is just going to continue on and nothing's going to get done between now and November. Yeah, that definitely seems to be the case. All right, we'll have to leave it there. Doug Cole of High Ground, Carl Gentles of the Gentles Agency. Guys, thanks so much for coming in. Thanks for the conversation. Thank, Thank you. you. Good morning. It's the show on KJZZ 91.5. I'm Mark Brody. Coming up, we'll hear about an indie rock album shaped by grief. But first, it's time for the next edition of our new series here on the show called Chef Talk. Here we'll sit down with a chef each month from fine dining rooms to nightclub kitchens and find out what makes them tick. Today, meet Peter McQuaid. He's a 25-year-old prodigy of an executive chef who recently took the helm of Collup, the restaurant inside Senna House Scottsdale, a hotel near Old Town. McQuaid started his career in food early, talking his way into some of the Valley's best kitchens before he could drive. At 15, he was working for Bo McMillan at Sanctuary after relentlessly messaging him on Facebook. After that, he was mentored by chef Silvana Salcido Esparza at Barrio Cafe. After that, he won Chopped Grand Champion on the Food Network. My co-host Lauren Gilger sat down with him recently in the dining room of Kala to find out more. 
Yeah, so I just kind of fell in love with cooking, you know, always loved food, loved holidays, um, loved seeing my family in the kitchen. You know, I realized at an early age that food, you know, brings people together. Loved being around a dinner table. Um, you can take 10 strangers, and if you put amazing food at that table, like, everyone's going to get along. And just something something really drew me to that um, as a kid. And then I got involved with actually CCAP, which is the Careers Through Culinary Arts program that gives out you know, a bunch of money and a bunch of scholarships um, to kids interested in the field and is a really amazing organization. Um, and that's where I won my scholarship through their, their yearly competition. So is it like an actual like competition in real time? Yeah, so CCAP's a good program for people to be involved in. Um, a lot of it helps, you know, culinary school kids in high school, you know, kind of really get into it. Um, and then every year they host a competition, and you go through two rounds. Um, and then if you make it to the final round, it's a 30 kids, I believe. Um, everybody wins something, which is amazing. Um, so you can compete. You sit down with the mentors. Um, you kind of talk what you want to do, what schools you're going to go through, and then they kind of pick something that'll suit your needs, um, that'll just, like, propel you into your career. So what dish did you cook? Yeah, so we had to make a salad with, like, these little, like, cucumber rings. So we had to shave the cucumber super fine, like, put it in a ring mold. You had to dice all the veggies perfectly. They would, like, dissect your, your salad dressing and to how much salt and pepper you put in. And then we had to make an omelet, um, which was – I was a badass at making omelets for two years. Still can rock one out right now. Um, then we had to make crepes and um, a chicken dish. None of those incredibly easy, I would I would assume. So, okay, so you're really young, clearly know you want to do this. What would, would, like, going through high school where you're just like, well, I know I want to cook, so why am I in history class, basically? Yeah, so it's kind of a funny story. You know, like I said, I loved, you know, cooking for holidays, seeing my family in the kitchen. But what got me into this field was I had to do a Spanish project, right? Spanish was my worst class. This is probably my sophomore year in high school, um, not doing well. And our teacher was like, you can do whatever you want. You know, do as long as it has to relate with, you know, Hispanic culture or the language or something. So I was like, you know what? I, you know, love to eat, love food. Let's do it on food. So I Googled um, best Mexican chef in Arizona, and her name is Silvana Salcido Esparza popped up. Of course, everybody knows and loves her Barrio Cafe and that, you know, great empire she's built. Um, I messaged her on Instagram probably like 20 times until she responded. <laughs> and she was like, hey, come on down, you can do your project. So I went down with my mom. Uh, my mom filmed us like making guacamole together. Um, we made a little uh, chicken poblano dish in the kitchen. I can remember it to a T, like this very day of like every working with her in the kitchen. And I was just so amazed um, by the experience. And she was like, I'm opening a new restaurant, Barrio Urbano. And she was like, you can start working this weekend if you want a job. And I was like, hell yeah, let's do it. So wait, you started in her kitchen after a school project. How old were you? I was 16. Wow. Okay, so what did you start doing? What was your first job there? So it was awesome. The restaurant wasn't open yet, so I got to see, like, the buildings of a restaurant. You got to, I got to see people bringing furniture in. Um, we were getting all the first orders, building the walk-in, um, prepping, and she taught me how to make – I remember she taught me to make – it was like, a, uh, like sour cream from scratch, I remember, was one thing. And then we braised short ribs, and we, like, took the sauce, and she uses a spice called chilatapine that people love. And I remember – like, you know, reducing that sauce and using all those spices that I've never even heard of before was just an incredible experience. You know, actually prepping with her in the kitchen and watching the restaurant come to life, you know, was pretty incredible. So from there, you're on a clear track. Thanks to Silvana. That's so cool. So you go to culinary school in New York City. How old were you? I w it was right out of high school. So I was 19, 20 years old. 
Tell us about that experience. I mean, was it like just getting thrown straight into the deep end? Yeah, New York City, you know, a, a dream of mine as a kid was to go to New York. Obviously, it's a culinary, you know, mecca of the world. You know, all the best chefs in the country um, are there. And I just, I really wanted to live and, you know, and breathe that environment. Um, so I went to culinary school there. I worked at Restaurant Danielle for a year and a half, which was an incredible experience. You know, it's Danielle Balud's restaurant? Yeah, Danielle Balud, his flagship, you know, one of the best French restaurants, you know, you can go to, which was incredible. So worked through the ranks there all through high school, and then I did my externship there. Once I graduated, then I can continued uh, working there. Um, loved New York City, but after a year and a half, I it wasn't the place for me, and I wanted to get back to the desert. So you're from here. You came back, and you've been, I mean, incredibly successful since coming back. How many restaurants have you opened at this point? Uh, two. So we opened a restaurant in Las Vegas about two years ago called Money Baby, um, and then we have the beautiful Cala Scottsdale, um, you know, right here in, in our hometown. And you're 25. Yes. Yeah. 25. 25. <laughs> I mean, like that's really young for having accomplished so much. Do you look at it from that perspective? Um, you know, sometimes I do, but I forget, honestly, you know, I think, you know, age is, is, is nothing but a number and it doesn't matter how, how old, how young you are, you know, if, if you're driven and you have the goals, I think you can go and reach them. You know, in culinary school, there was young kids like me, but there were also people in career changes that were in their thirties and forties wanting to get into the field. And I think you can, you can be as equally as successful and driven, you know, at any age, especially in this industry. Yeah. So, so is it the food itself? Is it the experience around food for you? Is it like the work ethic it takes to be in kitchens? Like, what do you love about it? Of course, I love cooking. You know, at the end of the day, that's what we are as chefs, right? We're cooks. And I think, you know, I always, I always got to remember that and go back to that because sometimes you get lost as an executive chef. You're, you're in paperwork, you know, you're doing all the financial numbers and you got to remember that at the end of the day, we are cooks and that's what we're here to do is cooking. But I also love hospitality and it's something I fell in love with as a kid. I love pleasing people and I love, I love the, the nature of the restaurant where you can, you know, make somebody's night special um, and you can do it for so many people. You know, that was what food was for me is watching somebody take a bite of my dish and smiling and it instantly made somebody, you know, happier and, and more pleasurable. And I just, I loved that aspect of it. So, I mean, you probably have a lot on your list in terms of what you want to accomplish in the rest of your career, but I mean, what does that look like for you? You're so young and you've come a long way. What's next? Yeah, I mean, what's next? You know, we got a couple things in the works that are super exciting. Um, you know, right now here at Kala, we're just really kind of getting better every, you know, each and every day with our team and want to put out the best food we can, give the best service we can. Um, and that's really the goal right now. You know, I've never really in my life, you know, planned my future out, to be honest, and never really had like a clear set, you know, goal. I've always just kind of gone with the flow and kind of like seen what is thrown at me. Um, so that's kind of where we are. Okay. So a couple of questions I ask every chef in this segment. And the first is your favorite dish to cook on the menu here at Cala. Like, and describe it for us. Sure. My favorite, ooh, hmm. My favorite dish to cook here at Kala, you know, we have a handmade pasta program, which is something that I just, I just loved, and I love all our pasta dishes. I have a beautiful extruder in the back, um, so that was really fun opening Kala, was experimenting with, you know, the ratios to semolina flour, to water, to olive oil, and all the different things you can do with pasta. Um, we've done rolled pasta, we've done stuffed pasta, we've done extruded pasta, um, and that's just kind of the, one of the funnest things about this restaurant is that creative, that creativity on the pasta side of life. 
pasta all in. Okay. And then this is always a, an interesting one for chefs, but what is your favorite thing to cook at home? What's in your fridge? Favorite thing to cook at home? You know, I love a whole roasted chicken is like one of the best things anybody can make. And I probably make it once a week. And I have an amazing cast iron pan I've used for the past five years. And I'll throw, you know, split some potatoes, throw them down, a bunch of herbs, onions, throw a whole chicken on top, season it up and throw it in the oven. Um, And that's how I like to cook at home. You know, easy, but, you know, incredibly delicious. So you won't say you just have beer and condiments in your fridge? Well, that's true, too. Yeah, vodka and, you know, all that kind of good stuff. (laughs) As most chefs. All right. Chef, thank you so much. I appreciate it. Of course. Of course. Thank you. Good morning. It's the show on KJZZ 91.5. I'm Mark Brody. Arizona artist Ed Mel died last week at the age of 81. Mel is probably best known for painting Arizona landscapes, but in a more architectural way. One of his paintings was the inspiration for an original production by Arizona Opera. Another was featured on a stamp celebrating the state centennial. I spoke earlier about Mel's career and legacy with Betsy Fallman, a professor of art history at ASU and adjunct curator of American art at the Phoenix Art Museum. And we started with how she describes Mel's work. His work is really amazing, and I, you know, to me, it's such a loss to the arts community to lose him. But he managed to convey the landscape of Arizona both in a modernist way and in a traditional way. And you have so many artists who they do the wet landscape, but they all begin to look alike. And Ed had a very distinctive aesthetic. And he loved the Southwest. You know, when he came back to teach at Hopi for two years, he said, I've got to come back. I want to get out of advertising. So it's very beautiful work that really transcends much of the current Western landscape painters, I think. How did he manage to do that? Because his paintings were pretty much exclusively landscapes. And yet, while you can tell that they're his by the style, they somehow don't all look alike. No, they don't. And I think that's another big achievement that he did, that he didn't seem to do the same thing every day. Yeah. Um, he also did prints. Um, he did sculpture. He did jackknife, if you've been up to the Scottsdale area. Um, and so he, he really made it – he kept it fresh all the way through. And he is somebody who is from Arizona, and as you reference, from he, Arizona, he, he left, left and though came to back. study, and then he got into advertising, and then he decided he just really didn't want the grind and came back to Arizona. What was it about Arizona that that drew him to it and to uh, painting its landscapes? I'm from the east, and. I never thought I'd see landscape that looked like this in my life. You know, I came out for my interview and I drove up to Sedona and like, what is that red rock? Yeah. Um, But it's got so many areas of really astonishing beauty. Whether, I mean, maybe if you're in the urban area, no, but when you get out of here, it is just a stunning experience. How would you describe how he painted the landscapes? Because as you pointed out, it is a little bit modernist. It's, mm-hmm. you know, they're very distinctive lines. It mm-hmm. almost looks a little bit like Art Deco, perhaps a, a bit. Like, how would you describe how It does have how, some, how some of that. Um, I think because he not only just, just did the landscape, he also dealt with the sky. Mm. And the sky, as, as you know, in Arizona was is so gorgeous at different times. I mean, this last week where the moon has been sort of coming in and out like Halloween, yeah. um, you know, it is it is really just beautiful. And so I think that combination of being able to do the sky and the the landscape below it uh, made his paintings very, very strong. What 
does he mean and what what has he meant to Arizona, both in terms of having people here and out of the state Mm -hmm. see what the landscape looks like, but also what has he meant to the arts community here? Well, he's one of the iconic artists of Arizona. Um, you know that he he rose to the top. He um, kept painting. He had the stamp in his honor, the centennial stamp, the yeah. centennial stamp, and he had, did the Riders of the Purple Sage, and he did you know so he did a number of other things that really put him in the in the view of of the public and of the art community. And everybody says I did not know him very well, but everybody says what a great guy he was. And there was one I, I'm trying to think where that obituary was, but it was Bob, Bob Bo's Bell mm. talking about him saying. Here's this guy dying of cancer, and he's making me laugh. <laughs> so it's that kind of good guy thing that I think he also kept. Some, you know, some artists can be prima donnas. Some, you know, you never know what you're going to get. He consistently had one, one dealer for the last 20 years, and that was Mark Sublette. Um, and you know, so I think that's part of his his legacy that he left. I'm curious about the ubiquity of his work because mm-hmm. you mentioned that he did prints and you know I grew up on the East Coast mm-hmm. as well and going into doctors offices for example mm-hmm. like I would see Edmel yeah. prints on the doctors offices in Connecticut uh-huh. I had never been to Arizona mm-hmm. like for the longest time I assume that his paintings are what the state looked like Yeah <laughs> Well it isn't quite true not every not every part of the state looks like what right. he yeah. what he painted um and I know he traveled all over the place just to see where the landscapes were that he might want to might want to paint. So he's, you know, less maybe of a sort of dirt desert guy, but he's more of a sort of really not exactly lush, but really strong images that really captured a state in 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 very interesting ways. Edmel seems like the kind of artist that maybe a lot of people would recognize his work, mm-hmm. even if they don't recognize mm-hmm. his name. Mm-hmm. Is that a fair assessment, do you think? I would think so, because I mean the art world, and you've got so many ways of accessing it, you mm-hmm. know, whether it's on YouTube or X or any of those things, and half the time they don't even label what they are. So, But it's just part of that sort of zeitgeist that he's part of the the uh, furniture, the you know view of Arizona that is almost subliminal. So you mentioned that a lot of artists talked about what a, a good guy he mm-hmm. was. Like, what what was your experience working with him, being around him? Um, I mainly had a lot of contact with him when I was working on Lon McGargy, who was Arizona's uh, original cowboy artist. Okay, and he was a real fan of McGargy and owned paintings. So we would sit and talk a little bit about what I was what I was doing um, with that. I was doing a show at the Desert Caballeros Western Museum, and so he was very interested in that show because he owned work by him. So we talked about his his impact on the art community here. What kind of legacy do you think he's leaving both to to Arizona and to the Arizona art scene? Well, there's so many ways you can chart a legacy. One is obviously with his art. But the other is the sort of rigor with which he did his paintings. And so he didn't really – I don't think he really sold out anywhere. Um, he didn't you know, just sort of keep churning out the same things. I think it really mattered to him to make each thing a little bit different and look at different things. Toward the end, he was doing rather more abstract work, uh, which was quite stunning. Um, I was like – I hadn't seen that before. And so he, you know, he really kept changing and thinking about Arizona. So that legacy of always working, of being an artist full time, which is very hard to do. Not that many artists can make a living with their art. Um, And those that can, wow, more power to them. He was just an amazing person. And I think he was very generous to other artists um, when he would run into them. So that is a real legacy, not to sort of block yourself out. 
As far as you know, did Edmel ever paint humans, or was it just landscapes and, and the occasional horse? I can't think offhand of a human picture. Um, but yeah, he did horses and he did cows and stuff like that. Yeah. But he, I can't think that he did was a portrait person. And it's amazing that he never, as we discussed, like he he painted the same kind of things. It was mm-hmm. landscapes, but mm-hmm. never the same, not really the right. same thing right. twice. And he never seemingly got bored of it. Like right. it's kind of impressive. Right, right. Well, I think probably if he went to his easel every every morning, you know, to think of something different and you know see how something struck him that he might have seen, because I'm sure he just didn't sit in the the um, his studio all the time, but I'm sure he went out and looked at all of these things, and it just kept fresh. I mean, I when I look at the landscape, it it never goes stale. Betsy Fallman is a professor of art history at ASU and adjunct curator of American art at the Phoenix Art Museum. She was helping us remember artist Ed Mel, who died last week at the age of 81. The band Slater Kinney grew out of the Riot Girl movement in the early 90s and is now an indie rock staple. Their 1997 album, Dig Me Out, is on Rolling Stone's list of the 500 greatest albums of all time. Corin Tucker and Carrie Brownstein, both on vocals and guitar, kept a strong bond through an eight-year hiatus and the departure of their drummer in 2019. Last month, they released their 11th studio album, Little Rope. They're performing tonight in Tempe, and the show's producer, Amber Victoria Singer, sat down with Brownstein to talk more about it. The name Little Rope, according to Brownstein, has a few different meanings. To us, Little Rope could be your darkest, most desperate moment, wanting to end it all, reaching for that rope, or the counter to that, of course, is that it's what someone throws you to pull you out of that same muck, or it's what binds us together, makes us feel connected. The phrase comes up in the song Small Finds. In the midst of working on their newest album, Tragedy Struck, Brownstein's mother and stepfather were killed in a car accident. Loss is very destabilizing. So yeah, it. I think guitar was something I could almost meditate upon because I knew what the language of it was at a time when the words weren't really coming to me. Although much of the emotion in Little Rope is shaped by Brownstein's grief, Tucker does a lot of the singing. I think because I felt rendered so incoherent with grief, I turned to Corin as the singer and sort of needed her to convey the monstrosity, the transcendence, all, all of the, the big things because I felt small and I knew that guitar was going to be the way that I express myself mm-hmm. and or songwriting or arranging. Brownstein and Tucker have been making music together for decades. This isn't the first Slater-Kinney album that feels deeply personal. I don't have another partnership that's lasted 30 years. So all I can say is that it's a little bit surreal. I think one constant is that we allow 
each other a vulnerability and a, a fearlessness. I think we feel ultimately safe around one another. It's just vulnerable to sit in front of another person and play guitar and sing a song that you're just working on. Little Rope opens with a song called Hell. Hell don't have no worries. Hell don't have no past. <laughs> I suppose that's a bold title uh, for an opening track. One of the ideas was to kind of grapple with a sense of complacency, not just political apathy or acquiescence. The reality is that chaos is sort of right right outside the door. Another song on the album is called Dress Yourself. That to me is is just trying to uh, meet the present moment and that um, the paradox almost of of life right now, where despite everything that's happening in the world, somehow we still have to perform the task of being human and presentable mm-hmm. on a daily basis. You can see Slater Kinney tonight at Marquee Theater in Tempe for KJZZ's The Show. I'm Amber Victoria Singer. And that'll do it for this Friday edition of the show. Thank you, as always, so much for being with us. I'm Mark Brody in Phoenix. Have a terrific rest of your day. Have a great weekend. Hope to have you right back here on Monday.